The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. They say you can get almost anything online. Well, in 2015, teenage brothers Robert and Michael Bever tested this theory and found it to be true. Anything they could dream up was just a click away. And what they had in mind was truly frightening. After weeks of preparation, they were nearly ready. Supplies had been ordered and with one final shipment scheduled to arrive at their family home on July 23rd, they put their plan into motion around midnight the night before. Join me now as we delve into what became known as the Broken Arrow Killings. You'll hear about the Bevers, a reclusive family of nine, torn apart in a single fateful day, and two brothers whose thirst for fame drove them to unspeakable acts. In the late hours of July 22, 2015, a frantic call to 911 is abruptly disconnected. The rest of the call turns to noise just before the line goes dead. The dispatcher traced the call to the Bever household in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, and tried calling the father of the house, David Bever. When the phone rang, someone actually answered, but whoever was on the other end said nothing. Police responded quickly by sending a unit to investigate and arrived to find blood on the front porch and drag marks through it. From the inside of the house, officers heard screaming, so broke down the door and went inside. One officer who entered called it the bloodiest scene he'd ever encountered in his career. He'd been serving for 15 years but no amount of experience could prepare someone for a sadistic, merciless crime like that. A crime that gave new meaning to the phrase, family tragedy. If you're not familiar with the name, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma might conjure up images of cowboys, covered wagons, and open prairies. But the truth is a bit more cosmopolitan, with Broken Arrow being a suburb of Tulsa the second largest city in the state. Broken Arrow was one of the towns established by the Muskogee Nation after arriving in Oklahoma at the end of the infamous Trail of Tears. The area has its dark history, but there's real beauty to northeastern Oklahoma with its rolling hills and quiet woods, its southern barbecue, and jazzy Art Deco architecture. It's also where nine members of the Bever family called home. In 2015, 44-year-old April Bever and 52-year-old David Bever were on the older side to be raising young children. With baby Autumn only two at the time, followed by 5-year-old Victoria, 7-year-old Christopher, 12-year-old Daniel, and 13-year-old Crystal, 
The two oldest children in the family were Michael and Robert, ages 16 and 18. Seven children altogether. Their house on Magnolia Court was large, almost like a barn, with its sloping roof and long sides. Then again, it had to be big to fit everyone, and it didn't look entirely out of place among the comfortable suburban homes on the quiet residential street. The Bever family mostly stayed inside and kept to themselves. Instead of mingling with schoolmates, the kids played alone in the backyard, and when they left home, they usually walked together in a tight group. Their father David worked in an IT department, where his co-workers described him as quiet but dependable. Usually he worked from home and hardly ever socialized, keeping him out of any petty office politics which his supervisor figured was a good thing. While David worked, April homeschooled their children, an arrangement that set tongues wagging, with neighborhood gossip divided. Some people saw the Bevers as a tight-knit family who all tagged along for the most minuscule outings, such as when April went grocery shopping. And although April and David were total hermits, they did take the kids on a few memorable outings, such as to museums, to see fireworks, trick-or-treating. Bowling was also another exception to the family's usual shyness. Other recollections were less heartwarming. What some neighbors saw as family togetherness, others saw as reclusive, describing parents who kept their kids on a very short leash. They also noticed that friends never seemed to come over to visit, and the blinds were always drawn. Some even said the family left the house so infrequently that the only way they could tell a family with children even lived at the house was because of the toys in the backyard. One of the Bevers' neighbors remembered the older boys always on the internet, which wasn't unusual really for a couple of teenagers. Robert, the oldest, left the house more than the rest of the children and sometimes volunteered to help the neighbor with yard work or walking the dog. He told her he wanted to become a doctor and seemed to be doing well at his job at a local call center. But that was only one side of Robert Bever. Privately, his views were decidedly more misanthropic. Voicing to his younger sister Crystal, he thought there were too many people in the world. 16-year-old Michael wasn't as subtle telling the same sister point-blank that one day he was going to kill the family and take their money. Crystal tried telling their mom the brothers were up to something, but April shrugged it off and didn't see it as anything more than attention-seeking behavior. As it would turn out, it was a lot more than that. For one thing, Robert and Michael definitely looked like indoor kids, both pale and gangly, with close-set eyes and messy brown hair. Even from a distance, it was obvious they were brothers, though you could tell them apart because Robert was taller and Michael had a more predominant nose. According to Robert, the Bevers could go months without leaving the house, except to buy groceries. They were also estranged from their extended family and rarely saw relatives, and talking to strangers was totally out of the question. The social blackout was so intense, David and April once forbid the kids to even tell people their names and told them to keep away from the windows of their home to protect their privacy. 
David might have worried about prying eyes from the outside, but inside their home, he installed security cameras in the bedrooms and hallways, sometimes watching the feed on his phone. And if he didn't like what he saw on the cameras, the family would hear about it. Whenever the family did venture out of the house for a supply run, the rations they picked up weren't especially nourishing, with the kids mostly existing on a diet of peanut butter sandwiches and ramen noodles. The adults ate slightly better, with April sticking mainly to TV dinners and David preferring grilled cheese sandwiches or chicken. He liked potato chips too, but kept those on a high shelf out of the children's reach. When it came to the subject of the children's education, it would be easy to assume the overprotective parents were equally heavy-handed at their homeschooling. But according to Robert, it was almost the exact opposite. In fact, he even took issue with the term homeschooling itself and preferred to call himself self-educated. He maintained David and April would lock themselves in their offices for hours at a time and that April's contribution to their education was limited to passing along links to educational websites for the kids to peruse. Robert claims she was so lax about their education, he took charge of Michael's schooling himself from the third grade to the fifth. If the neglect of her parental duties sounds damning, it's worth noting that April's own life experiences were limited. With David about a decade older than her, the couple married when April was only 15. But it wasn't just extreme introversion keeping the family inside. Robert said his parents, quote, told us the world was full of people who wanted to hurt us, and the biblical apocalypse was coming soon to settle the score. Behind closed doors, the older brothers Robert and Michael claimed their father was physically abusive, beating Robert who had a stutter and Michael, who had a speech impediment, hoping it might make them speak clearly. Robert also claimed he'd never even seen a family doctor. Some of what we think we know about life inside the Bever House has to be taken with a grain of salt, since it comes from the questionable memories of the two boys. Given their paranoid lifestyle, though, and the long hours they spend exploring the darker corners of the internet, it's safe to say the brothers had a particularly virulent case of cabin fever. A case of cabin fever that would lead to a deadly idea. According to Robert, the idea started with a little role-playing. Playing online games was a source of enjoyment for Robert, especially the immersive experience of role-playing, and over time, he created dozens of characters with many ending up going crazy in the games or acting out violent fantasies. While it's true, a lot of people use online gaming as a way to blow off steam in a virtual sandbox, Robert took it a bit further than that. In fact, he went as far as ordering real-life body armor to look more like one of his avatars and wore it around the house. Wearing it around his dad made him feel tougher, which was an even bigger benefit. But it always wasn't darkness and brooding in Robert's world. Aside from creating online characters, Robert had also created a YouTube channel under the username Cult Empire Official, where he shared his thoughts on gaming or anything else that popped into his head. New hairstyle, check it. It's called a faux hawk. 
where I don't have to shave the rest of my head, but I still get a uh, mohawk. I hope it still looks like a faux hawk. Uh, I did it before. I still have my long hair. I just shaped it to look like a faux hawk. In the next couple days, I'm going to try to get an actual faux hawk. Watching the videos, it's amazing how innocent Robert seems, smiling widely, cracking goofy jokes, talking about Minecraft and other games he wanted to make videos of. In hindsight, it's hard to see anything but an average teenager. Yet according to Michael, Robert was the mastermind behind the unfolding plan. The way he remembers it, their conversations about killing started a year or two before they decided to go through with their horrific plans. Michael Bever was born in 1999, the same year as the Columbine shootings, which might go some ways to explaining his eventual fascination with Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, the killers responsible for the horrific school shooting. The Aurora, Colorado movie theater shooting in 2012 also captured the brothers' attention, and together they wondered out loud, what would it take to outdo the murderous records set by the idols they discovered online? Eventually, they started planning on setting some records of their own with a cross-country shooting spree. They even had their social media strategy worked out to get as much publicity as possible. The first step of their plan was to kill the other members of their family. They'd dismember their parents and siblings and hide the remains in storage bins in their attic. Getting away with any of this was never their goal. In fact, it was the opposite. They planned to use footage from their father's security cameras to document their crimes. There would be two versions. One that didn't show the bodies, so they could post their handiwork online without being immediately censored. And another version for the police, that they could use it later to prove the extent of their crimes. But before they were captured, they intended to take the family car on the road for a second phase of the operation and settled on Washington State as their first stop. By murdering five random people at each location they visited, they hoped to rack up a body count high enough to earn fame as serial killers. They figured it would take 50 at least to put them on the map. They just needed the right tools to get started. Acquiring body armor and knives was easy. They found those on eBay and Amazon. Robert handled the purchasing decisions because he had the money from his call center job. They didn't even bother to hide their arsenal at home. 13-year-old Crystal tried telling her mother the brothers were stockpiling knives, but again, she had a boys-will-be-boys reaction. When Robert wore his body armor openly in front of his father, David was just disappointed his son was being so frivolous with his hard-earned cash. Firearms were a little trickier to come by, though ordering guns online was surprisingly easy. Robert ticked the box saying he was of legal age and placed an order for a Mossberg shotgun and two Glock pistols, one for each of them. But actually getting the guns would be much more difficult because online firearm purchases are mailed to registered firearm dealers who must conduct proper background checks and age verification. Because Robert was 18, he would have been legally allowed to purchase the shotgun, but under Oklahoma law, he needed to be 21 in order to obtain the handguns. 
After the guns were ordered, they shipped it to a nearby gun store. But how exactly Robert planned to walk out of there with the handguns, we'll never know. When it came to buying ammunition, that part was easy. Robert ordered more than 2,000 rounds of ammunition and requested shipment directly to the doorstep, scheduled for July 23rd, 2015. The brothers had been able to get away with stockpiling body armor and knives, even though their parents were aware of it. But they worried that a delivery of bulk ammunition might be the point their parents would intervene. So they decided to carry out their attack on the 22nd, the night before the ammunition was scheduled to arrive. But when July 22nd finally came around, it seemed like Michael might be having second thoughts. He told Robert he wanted to spend the time holding his baby sister, Autumn, who was about to turn two. For his part, Robert took his three younger siblings, Crystal, Daniel, and Christopher, bowling with the Summer League at Broken Arrow Lanes, just as he'd done for the past eight weeks. Robert didn't bowl, instead he watched and played chaperone. He was friendly with the general manager, clowning around with her and the kids by putting glow sticks behind his glasses. When the Bevers left, their team only needed one more game to win the league. Later that night, at 11.30 p.m., April asked Crystal to tell her brothers to do the dishes. It was late for the children to still be up, but it was something of a tradition with the Bevers. April often posted on a Reddit account where she once asked, Anyone else have midnight cleaning parties with their kids? I just finished deep cleaning four rooms with three kids because they did not want to go to bed yet. They will do anything to stay up. House looks great and ready for Christmas. Crystal went to her brother's bedroom to tell them about the dishes, but when she walked in, it seemed she walked into the middle of something. I'm pretty sure almost everyone has a guy like Tyler in their life, the one that's almost impossible to buy a gift for. Yes, Tyler's particular, but what makes him the most difficult person to buy for in my life, literally, is the fact that before I can even investigate something he said he likes, it's already arriving on our doorstep. That's why I have to tell anyone in my same situation about manly bands. Really cool and unique rings for that man in your life who's impossible to surprise and buy a gift for. And not just any gift. I'm talking about a gift that's going to knock their socks off. Manly Bands crafts rings and wedding bands made out of unique materials like dinosaur fossils, fallen meteorites, tank metal, or officially licensed materials like an aged Jack Daniels whiskey barrel, a Fender guitar string, or a ring officially licensed by Lord of the Rings. A unique gift for a unique guy. And for Tyler, since he's pretty much into anything to do with war history, I knew I had to get him the 1942 model, a cobalt chrome ring made with a teak wood deck sleeve from the most decorated ship in U.S. Navy history, the USS New Jersey. And Tyler absolutely loved it. The other great thing about Manly Bands is that all of their licensed and made-to-order rings come with a lifetime warranty. This assurance allows you to buy with confidence, knowing that your investment is protected for life. So if you've got a man in your life that's impossible to surprise, or maybe you're getting married, or you just want to give a really cool gift to the man in your life, you've got to check out Manly Bands. 
especially right now, because Manly Bands is offering Minds of Madness listeners 25% off right now when you use code MADNESS. That's an exclusive discount of 25% off for Minds of Madness listeners when you go to manlybands.com and use code MADNESS. There's no better time to invest in a Manly Bands ring than right now. For a 25% discount on all rings, go to manlybands.com and use code MADNESS. This is the perfect opportunity to purchase a quality, handcrafted, unique ring for the man in your life at a fantastic price. Go to manlybands.com now to check out their amazing selection of rings and use code MADNESS for 25% off at manlybands.com. The brothers were putting on body armor with their knife collection splayed out on the bed. Michael asked Robert, should we do it right now? Robert said yes. Crystal had seen their weapons collection before and had no idea what they were talking about. So when Michael told her he wanted to show her something on his desk, she complied. But Michael's request was just a distraction. As Crystal approached the desk, Michael came up behind her with a knife and slit her throat. When 13-year-old Crystal fell to the ground screaming, Robert kept up the attack. The attack wasn't anything like Michael had envisioned. He'd expected her to die immediately and quietly, so they could then stash her body in the closet. Instead, it was loud and bloody, and he froze. Robert experienced the moment differently. He used his role-playing experience to create a ruthless, cold-blooded character in his mind, also named Robert Bever, who wouldn't flinch when the time came. When April came to investigate the commotion, Robert had already flipped the switch. Seeing what had happened, April began yelling for someone to call the police and to get David. And at that moment, Robert turned the knife on his own mother. Although April too attempted to fight back, Robert was relentless. An autopsy would later reveal she'd been stabbed over 40 times. As April lay on the floor dying, she prayed out loud for her son. In the meantime, Crystal had managed to get up off the floor and ran out the front door of the house while her brothers were distracted. She made it to the front lawn, but blacked out from her injuries before she could make it to her neighbors. When Robert found her, he dragged her back inside. Crystal fleeing out the front door had triggered the alarm system, but only briefly, because Michael had entered the cancellation code before anyone got suspicious. When Robert asked Michael where the other siblings were, Michael said they were hiding. Two of the younger children, seven-year-old Christopher and five-year-old Victoria, had run and locked themselves in the bathroom when the chaos broke out. To try to get them out, Michael knocked on the door, begging them to let him in, pleading that Robert was going to kill him, and they believed him. After murdering Christopher and Victoria, the killer started looking for the next victim. 12-year-old Daniel had taken shelter in his father's office, which fortunately had a lock. Unfortunately, Michael's brotherly deception had worked so well the first time, he tried it again. Once more, a trusting younger sibling opened the door to answer their brother's plea for help and let him in. When the door swung open, 
Daniel pleaded with them not to kill him and told them he loved them. The brothers murdered him anyway. Although Daniel didn't survive the attack, he'd managed to call 911. Because of Daniel's bravery, the alarm was raised. If he hadn't gotten the call through, there might have been dozens more grieving people in Washington State, which was next on the brothers' hit list. Finally, and far too late, the children's father, David, woke up. Emerging from his bedroom, he charged at Robert. Michael called out a warning just before the two grappled. David was bigger, but Robert had a weapon. As David was overpowered, he asked why. Robert simply replied, because I must. In total, David was stabbed 28 times. Dealing with their father cost the brothers precious time, and they knew they needed to escape before law enforcement arrived at their doorstep. So they frantically searched their mother's purse for car keys. When they couldn't find them, they fled out the back door into the woods behind their house and dove into a ditch when they heard sirens approaching. But a canine unit tracked them easily, and they were arrested without further bloodshed. When police handcuffed the brothers and took them into custody, they were covered in blood and dirt. You guys did a good job, Michael said. We did not expect you to get here this fast. Crystal, the 13-year-old sister who was the first to be attacked, was rushed to the hospital in critical condition. Upstairs, police discovered a small mercy. The youngest member of the family, two-year-old Autumn, was fast asleep in a bedroom. In the confusion, her murderous brothers had forgotten all about her. Incredibly, despite enduring a slit throat, as well as severe wounds to her arms and stomach, Crystal Bever survived. Her testimony would play an important role on how the graphic story would be reconstructed for the courts. Although we have to take Robert and Michael's unreliable word for many of the details, Crystal's account of the day her family was murdered corroborates much of what they said. She was also able to confirm several instances of David's abuse very similar to what Robert and Michael had described. Then again, their stories did have a few issues. The main question that will never be completely answered is how much Michael was an active participant and how much he was under his brother's influence. In an interrogation video taken shortly after the killings, Michael looks like a child. He's gangly with deep-set eyes. His voice is soft with a slight speech impediment. But he's forthcoming with the information detectives are looking for. Uh, a couple months ago, I think we got to this guy, this guy we started talking about uh, voodoo and rampage and stuff like that. Okay. And I didn't take it seriously at first, but then he started buying like a body armor and stuff. Where did he buy body armor from? eBay and Amazon. Oh, okay. Yeah, legal. Does yeah. he have a job? He did it at my tech, he quit the start of the year. And uh, basically, it just kept escalating, he kept getting burned, and he asked if I went in and I said yes, so he got me my own set. Okay. And then, about a month, about like June 30th, is when he came to me and said he found out that he can legally buy guns without permit in Oklahoma that he could. Okay. And uh, that's when he started planning. 
As detectives asked him questions, he consistently downplayed his role. So then how, so, so he was buying weapons because you guys had talked about murdering. Yeah, and he stopped playing again. Okay. And I went along with it because I didn't feel the way I thought I wouldn't want to do it. I very quickly went to snipe and I didn't. Okay, that you didn't want to do it? I don't want to do it. I didn't, uh, just see how I didn't kill anyone. Okay. I stabbed someone. Who did you stab? Um, my younger brother, Christopher. Christopher? How old's Christopher? Um, nine, I think. What did you stab him with? Oh, uh, my life. Michael may have learned that he didn't want to be a murderer that night, but it's worth remembering that Christopher, the family member he did admit to stabbing, was only seven years old. You can tell from his answers to the follow-up questions that Michael's priorities were confused, to say the least. So then the second day, you said that's when you realized that it might actually happen? Yeah. What made you realize that? Um, how serious he was. I mean, he was going through, he started, um, he started planning on taking all of his money out of his, uh, bank and throwing away his stuff, throwing away all his stuff, so, you know. Why did he want to do that? Uh, kill people? Yeah. Um, well, mainly two reasons, I think. It's, um, because he just, like, he says he hates everyone he thinks society is pointless, so, mm -hmm. and, people. Yeah, and also he wanted to like beat, um, beat the kill, like amount of other famous people like Columbine and uh, James Higgins. Okay. Did you kind of feel that way too? Like when you guys were talking earlier, like, yeah, it, like, do you have a problem with society too, you think? No, no I just, or you were just more like the, the number of people getting killed was kind of interesting and yeah, exciting. Yeah. Okay. The detectives clearly suspected Michael had been more involved than he let on, and under pressure, he finally admitted to also stabbing his mother in Victoria. In the next clip, you can also hear Michael's psyche at war with itself. Did you guys talk about being on the news and getting to see each other on TV and stuff? Yeah. What kind of things did you say and talk about? Um, mostly about how we were playing by killing more people. You know, yeah. Talk. And, um, we would become famous, we'd get on Wikipedia lists. Oh, okay. Famous people. That'd be a big deal, yeah. I mean, do you think they might even make a movie or something, or a TV show? Um, about a good TV show, but... Uh, Did you guys talk about that? Yeah, I feel documentaries and stuff. <sighs> he just wanted to be famous. What did you want? Me? Mm-hmm. You keep talking about what he wanted, what did you want? Oh, no, I just want to get my lawyers for me. Get a job. But you, I mean, your, your big brother's telling you he wants to be famous and you guys are making these plans. Surely you want some I, of that I fame too, it, right? Yeah, I do want to do it with him because, like, he's going to do it no matter what. He says if I don't do it with him, they'll just kill me too. Or leave me there, so... Um... It's hard not to listen to Michael and want a clear answer. An obvious motive. How could he look at a child as young as four, a blood relative who grew up in the same house, with murder in his heart? And how could he ignore his cries for mercy? How do, how do you feel about what you've done now? I, I didn't like it to admit it. So I, I mean, how do you feel about your mother? 
I mean, you, I mean, she, you watched her get stabbed. You, you cut her throat yourself, and you watched her bleed all over the place and scream. How does that make you feel? No, it's, I don't think about it. You don't want to think about it. And Christopher, your little brother. I mean, you stabbed him in the neck. What, is, what has he ever done to you? So he's just a number. Yes. And how does? I mean, how do you feel about that now? It's pointless. It's what? Pointless. Pointless. Robert and Michael were charged with five counts of first-degree murder, as well as one count of assault and battery with intent to kill for their crime against their sister Crystal. They pleaded not guilty to all charges. Though Michael was only 16 at the time, Oklahoma law states that 16 and 17-year-olds may be tried as adults in first-degree murder cases. Ultimately, Michael received none of the protection usually afforded to juvenile offenders, except for the provision that he was not eligible for the death penalty. The court also didn't buy his claim that he was mostly a passive observer. An assessment of his mental state rated his IQ at 85, which is considered the low end of average, and in the end, any cognitive deficits were ruled not to be a factor in the murders. Robert, on the other hand, was even more of a contradiction than his brother. In his interrogation, police claimed he laughed out loud while sharing the gory details. Yet while awaiting trial, Robert made an unsuccessful suicide attempt and was moved to suicide watch instead. Eventually, Robert decided to plead guilty and received five consecutive life sentences as a part of the deal to avoid the death penalty. He tattooed LWOP, life without parole, on the knuckles of one hand, and five, a reference to the number of victims on the other. When it was time for Michael's trial, Robert attempted to take the fall by testifying he'd done the killing himself. He told the court he'd been diagnosed with major depression with psychotic features. Photo evidence shown to him while he was on the stand made him break down in tears. He said for the longest time, the plan wasn't real and was just something to make himself feel better. He claimed he didn't witness Michael kill anyone, though the evidence and Michael himself told a different story. Knowing Robert was lying to save his brother's skin, prosecutor Steve Kunzweiler took it all in stride. I think anybody sitting in the gallery would say it's just it's it's hard to even fathom what's coming out of that person's mouth and and so um, you know what we do is just do our job and, and start challenging whether there's truth to what he's saying or not. A journal seized from Michael's jail cell included crude morbid drawings in crayon such as a white power swastika and a picture of the Jonestown massacre in Guyana. Michael's lawyer argued that was proof of below-average understanding, but it didn't help. He received a life sentence with the possibility of parole. After the trial, the state's prosecutor thanked Crystal for the role she played in the investigation and trial, putting into perspective the unimaginable trauma suffered by the oldest surviving victim. There's no doubt that this has got to be one of the uh, toughest things that any human being can have to go through. Uh, I'm very grateful for uh, a surviving teenager. Uh, I think she finally is going to have the opportunity to uh, put 
some of this behind her. I don't think she's ever going to be able to put all of it behind her, but uh, the reality is she's not going to have to worry about her brother being on the street. So um, it's, it's, it's satisfying to, to get through this process, and we're looking forward to uh, having this jury make its appropriate punishment. He also added his strong feelings about why he believed Michael should never be given the opportunity to be paroled. They punched a knife into their sister's neck. They then went and attacked their mom, gave her 40 some odd wounds to her body. They then hunted down their dad and stabbed him in a bedroom. And then they had the audacity to go and knock on a door to try and lure out those children so they could stab them, so that they can go on some kind of cross-country crime spree. Uh, I, I, I want to know, when do you want them out, right? When do you want them as your next-door neighbor? Both brothers have now begun serving their sentences, and while in prison, Robert proved his violent streak wasn't a one-time psychotic break. One afternoon in the prison day room, he crept up behind a clinician with a sharpened instrument. Only a quick-thinking social services specialist who threw Robert in a bear hug prevented him from claiming a possible sixth victim. The surviving victims of the Bever family massacre, Crystal and Autumn, were eventually adopted into a Tulsa family where hopefully they'll begin their long journey of healing and may eventually rebuild the sense of trust that was stolen from them on that day. In the aftermath of the Bever family murders, their former home stood empty for months, literally, because much of the interior had been removed as a biohazard. It became the proverbial haunted house kids would cross the street to avoid, with mildew taking over the exterior of the garage door, weeds spreading around the falling down fence. The curse became official when a real estate appraiser designated the property stigmatized meaning its value was far lower than its location and condition would suggest. By Oklahoma law, a seller would have to state the house's history as a property defect. Though the address was so notorious, most buyers would probably find out anyway. It defaulted to the Bevers Mortgage Company, who were left to decide whether to try and sell it as is or simply demolish the building and sell the lot. In the end, the decision was made for them. Almost two years after the murders, firefighters were called to reports of a fire at the Bever family home. They arrived in the middle of the night to the house engulfed in flames. No one was hurt, though for neighbors watching out the window, it was a dark echo of the first time emergency vehicles had pulled up outside late at night. Once the building was in ruins, the way forward was clear. On March 27, 2017, city officials dedicated the space that had once been 709 Magnolia Court as Reflection Park. As one of the first responders that responded out here that memorable summer night in 2015, I can tell you there are images ingrained of the minds of every first responder that will never go away completely. Closure for an event like this is something that can never be fully recognized but to my brothers and sisters in blue and in red, I want you to know that your efforts have not gone unnoticed. For the responding to the scene and saving the two surviving victims, for working tirelessly for hours processing the scene, for spending 
day and night many years afterwards to make sure that the two people responsible for this terrible event uh, go exactly where they belong, which is in prison, and uh, for even apprehending those two people before sunrise the following morning. It is something that your work ethic, your, uh, your dedication, your drive, and the sacrifice that all of us have, uh, have put in has not gone unnoticed, and I want to recognize all of these first responders, uh, firefighters and police officers, for their work on this uh, tragic scene that we encountered that night in 2015. A gazebo, some greenery, and artful-landscaped rocks invite passers-by to honor the memories of the deceased, as well as the first responders who will never be able to forget what they saw that day. Materials to build the park were mostly donated, a testament to the community's desire to remember the Bever story without letting the darkness define them. These days, the park is green and peaceful, Monarch butterflies stop there along their annual migration. It's a small but hopeful sign that life goes on even in the wake of unthinkable tragedy. And now I'd like to introduce the podcast, Crimepedia. Hi, I'm Terry. And I'm Morgan. And we host the true crime podcast, Crimepedia, where we investigate unsolved crimes and cold cases from across the world. We work with law enforcement and victims' families to help spread the word about cases that need more help. So join us every Tuesday wherever you download your podcasts. And follow us on social media. Just search for Crimepedia. Follow the Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also, by checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>